Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome to another hour dedicated to a fresh inquiry exploring exactly what enlightenment means and what it might be to be enlightened. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more about ourselves, an hour designed to help us integrate all of our knowledge and perhaps even challenge some of our ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. This is an hour for the open-minded willing to risk their foregone conclusions and perhaps discover an entirely new dimension in their thoughts and being. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of honoring the role you play in making our show successful. Last week our show was all about animal powers. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake was our guest, and we not only discussed animal powers such as telepathy, but we also spoke about what I think of sometimes as the taboo against knowing, uh, to steal a line from Alan Watts. And, and that is, the resistance one can meet in the scientific community to ideas that challenge the current dominant idea, especially the one that would uh, reduce the human condition to the mechanistic view of uh, mere meat machine. And, and that idea itself, you know, that, that prohibition, if you will, in science can, you know, eliminate honest inquiry. Jerry wrote, it is, as your guest said, for some of us in science, if you challenge the paradigm, you are met with ridicule as though you had challenged the state religion. Richard, writing in our chat room, wrote, it's not a religion, it's not a religion. Poor thinking and perception is typical of the human species and is universal of the unaware. It takes damn hard work to become actively aware of one's own thinking style. Amen to that, Richard. Mod Girl added, if you are aware of your thinking style, then you have to admit that you can change it. Most people are afraid of having that much power. Bill wrote, what can I say about today's show? Wow. Now, that's a pithy comment. I like <laughs> that one, huh? I do, too. James wrote, Greetings, dear Eldon. Absolutely thrilled to see you have a new title in the works. I did want to report to you that I don't think our kiddies listened to yesterday's program, however. Upon my return home from class rehearsals last evening, they were all napping on the job. Well, now that's a great letter, James. And I'll tell you what. If you teach them to read, I'll send them a copy of Dr. Sheldrake's book, and that may help them be more alert and aware when you arrive home. <laughs> Teresa wrote, thanks for the freebies. I'm freelancing after being laid off and money is tight. I really appreciate it. Well, you're more than welcome, Teresa, and I'll use your letter to remind everyone of our Pay It Forward program. We have a number of InterTalk programs available at absolutely no cost to you. They can be downloaded as MP3s by going to intertalk.com and choosing free programs from the left-hand navigation pane. These are not samples. This is the scientifically proven effective and patented technology that has helped millions worldwide. Yulia from Australia wrote, I am listening to the CDs and know the product works. I already find myself asking people, have you read Eldon Taylor's books? Have you heard of subliminal programming? It is an honor to be associated with Intertalk Technology. Thank you. Well, Yulia, it's indeed our honor to be joined by people like you. Thank you for your feedback and support. Harold wrote, I did an MSc, that's a Master of Science, in Transpersonal Psychology at Liverpool John Moores University some while ago. It covered all major areas of brain science and psychology from a transpersonal perspective. 
Eldon's work, however, has brought it all to life for me to an amazing extent. Can't thank you enough. Well, you just did, Harold, and thank you for your feedback. Kevin wrote, where else could you listen to such a great guest, great host, and have such a great chat? It's provocative enlightenment. Tuesdays are awesome. Hey, Kevin, thanks. What a great comment, right, Rev? I think so. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. You can also just leave comments on my website. I do try to read all of your letters. Obviously, we can't get them all on the air, but they do impact our programming. I highly value your input, and I do encourage you to please provide your feedback. And once again, thank you for your continued support. Now to today's show. Is there such a thing as an essential human impulse that drives a will to connect to others, a need to belong? And if so, is it due to the fact that we are not really individual anything, individual beings, but collective herd animals? Our guest today believes that science is disclosing the fact that we are not individuals in any sense of the term. Does this really make any sense? Eastern and Oriental mystics for millennia have taught oneness, wholeness, as opposed to separateness. Our Western world has tended to favor the rugged individual and feature the epics of individual heroes. Indeed, Emerson insisted that self-reliance was the path for all people of accomplishment. So is there a place in our Western mindset for oneness, wholeness as a way of life, not a mere metaphysical substrate? If you think about it, peace requires a connectedness that is at least sufficient to value others as you might yourself. That said, how does one rectify the difference in values, say, between the culture and man who might legally cut the nose and ears off his 14-year-old bride because she failed to please him, with values more inclined to espouse equal rights. In my view, I highly prize the individual and their right to their own thoughts, their own ideas. I think too many get pulled into the hive mentality. I have written extensively about this in my books. The bottom line for me, whose thoughts are you thinking? I know the industrial complex, the marketers and the politicians spend billions of dollars learning exactly how to own our thoughts, to program our choices. And this is not desirable in my view. But then, is a collective of any kind, like the Star Trek Borg, ever desirable? On the other hand, is it inevitable if we are ever to find a place where the world agrees and peace prevails? Well, this apparent dichotomy is only a part of our show today, so let's get our guest in here and begin our discussion. Lynn McTackert is a best-selling author, researcher, and lecturer whose work has been described as a bridge between science and spirituality. For the past 20 years, she has been researching medicine and its shortcomings and quantum physics and what this means for you and the world we live in. The result has been her best-selling books, The Field, The Attention Experiment, and What Doctors Don't Tell You. Her newest book, the subject of today's show, is The Bond, Connecting Through the Space Between Us. She has been on our show before, so let's welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Lynn McTaggart. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, Eldon. It's so great to be back with you. Well, and it's 
good to have you. And I'm sorry that, you know, we missed connections earlier. I understand you had a, you know, and I relate to the kind of deal that you were, you know, you were, you were going through. Your dog was ill and, uh, and I understand he's passed. And so I want to, you know, I want to say to you, you have my great sympathy. Uh, I, I can still think of, of, uh, my friend that passed not long ago and the tears will swell in my eyes. So, uh, I know. get that said, I'm, it, and, and your it, dog is your sorry? dog is in your book. My so, dog is it, in my book a couple of times. My dog has been a real <laughs> inspiration for a number of things. Um and interestingly enough was in part the uh one of the inspirations for the bond. Uh it was a real interesting thing that went on with Ollie. I used to watch him and uh, now First of all, I was I was thinking when I started writing this book, I started to think about the whole idea about competition, and what and one of the things that happened to me was um, one of my daughters, who was very good in drama, had been chosen for the lead part in her school play. Um, then all of a sudden, she'd been shunted to a more minor role. I could never find out the reason for this until one of her friends let slip that another girl had lied to a new director who came on board in order to take over the part given to my daughter. And this girl, by the way, was my daughter's best friend. So I was kind of horrified by this. But when I approached her mother, her mother said to me, well, you know, that's life. And I was again horrified until I started thinking about it. And I thought, well... That's right. This is the end point of the kind of life we adults have created for ourselves because we use competition as the engine of just every area of our lives from our educational model. Competition is the you know central aspect of that. Our business and financial model is, runs on competition. Our relationships are so adversarial. You know, they are oftentimes all about, you know, minds bigger than yours. And even our even our neighborhoods, you know, God forbid um, your neighbor's driving a Mercedes when you are still driving a Volvo. So mm-hmm. I started thinking about this all and wondered to myself, well, you know, does it have to be like this? And then I was inspired by little Ollie, who was a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, um, who was an unneutered male. And he had a dear friend next door in T-Bone who was a neutered female affenpincher. So both small dogs, Ollie's slightly bigger. Ollie would dig holes under our fence in order to shove bones under the fence to T-Bone. And I looked at this and I went, wow. And then when T-Bone would, would come over, Ollie would go and dig in our garbage you know, our garbage pen and our, our, our garbage and rubbish heap outside and try to find a carcass of something and bring it around for T-Bone and he to feast on, a little like Lady in the Tramp. And, you know, if they played, Ollie would let her win just to keep her in the game. So I looked at all of this and I started thinking to myself, you know, this behavior defies everything that evolutionary biologists say about how animals behave. Animals are supposed to be selfish. They're supposed to be only kind in this way to kin. Now, this was a neutered female, so Ollie had no chance to propagate the the family line. Um, he just adored T-Bone, and he was very sacrificial. And there was nothing, essentially, dog-eat-dog about his world. So that really prompted me to ask the basic question. Was it supposed to be like this? Were we supposed to be so competitive and individualistic? And if not, how are we supposed to be? 
And are we being told the right scientific story? So well, that really prompted there. the book. Let's begin there. You, because, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had a bit of a cold. You, uh, you basically say that, <clears throat> again, I'm sorry, Lynn, the idea that science is somehow suggesting a new story that challenges the basic sense of separateness. Flesh that idea out for me, will you please? Sure. Um, what I wanted to ask was basically, you know, what is the scientific story telling us about who we are? And is do we need a new scientific story? And as you know, Eldon, um, I have written a lot about modern cutting-edge physics before this, but I wanted to move wider this time and look at biology and psychology and anthropology and sociology, all the ologies, basically, and look at what the new science is saying. Because, you know, lots of things write the story we live by, from religion and philosophy, all those kinds of things. But the main author is science now. And overwhelmingly, what I found was science was basically saying, no, we weren't ever meant to be competitive. Um, you know, we've been, we were told from the scientist, the time of the scientific enlightenment, that you know we that Newton and others like him described a very well behaved world filled with individual self contained things, so we got a real sense of individual things from Newton and then Darwin you know Darwin described those things as engaged in a struggle. he really created our scarcity model, and Darwin never actually uh, coined the term survival of the fittest uh, that was a friend of his Darwin was very influenced, however, by people writing about population explosion at the time. And he really felt that there was a problem with not enough. And so this really influenced him to think that, well, life must evolve through struggle and competition. And, you know, it's hard to underestimate um, how important Darwin was in spreading these ideas around the globe. Um, he, you know, his books really occurred with the advent of mass printing, and they were used to justify all sorts of things, you know, burgeoning uh, the, the Industrial Revolution, burgeoning capitalism, um, one race is prevailing against another, even sociopathic behavior like the Nazi Party. All of that was really justified by Darwinism. So, in a sense, that has been, in, you know, in sum, the scientific story we've been told. But as I say, all the new science shows something else. They show, I believe, that from our subatomic particles to our bodies and their environment to everyone with whom we come into contact and even our societal relations, there is a bond. And by bond, I mean a connection so profound and integral that it's impossible to say where one thing ends and another thing begins. Okay, but now, you know, when when I look at this, it, there really is a dichotomy here, uh, and I and I think I kind of set that up in our opening piece. I mean, one of my favorite books is Jonathan Livingston Seagull, mm -hmm. and I'm sure most have read this story. So, you know, it's the story of how one seagull rises above the rules and limitations of the group. How yeah. do you square the idea of the individual development versus this group oneness or conformity that you ultimately have implied in the bond. Okay, that's what I want to make clear, and thanks for setting that up, Eldon. What I'm not talking about is 
complete group conformity. What I'm not talking about is communism or even socialism. And I can speak with authority on that subject because I live in the UK, which adopted, and I have done for half my life, and it adopted a number of socialistic policies that are being, socialist policies that are being, you know, dismantled now, essentially, other than the National Health Service. Dismantled there and adopted here. Sorry, yeah, well, the National Health Service, I've got to say, works pretty well. I mean, in terms of a basic, you know, safety net, um, the idea that anybody can just walk into the hospital and be taken care of is pretty great. Um, But I'm not talking about across-the-board sameness or redistribution of wealth or not having an individual voice, none of that. What I'm really talking about, though, is doing what we were meant to to do, doing what we meant to do, which is we were hardwired, we were programmed not to compete, but to share, care, and be fair. Now, that's very different from not having an individual idea about something. But the point is, we've been so imbued with the idea that we have to win at somebody else's expense. And it's that that's the problem, and that goes against nature. Okay, now, and I, and I totally concur. I mean, I I want to get that said, but at the same time, you know, I have some difficulty with this, and so, you know, I want you to help me understand, because you heard the setup piece, so how do we reconcile differences of culture and personal values in approaching this idea of share and care? I mean, uh, you know, the radical Islamist has entirely different ideas about share and care, and your book focuses on what you call the crisis of our time, which has to do with the political environment and the, you know, the, the, the entire world as we deal with it today. So how, how do we approach that, Lynn? Practically, how do we approach that? Okay. In terms of connecting across deep divides, I mean, my book was really written to address that. Because as you say, I mean, I really have looked at all of the crises of modern times from financial crisis to ecological crises, etc. And when you look at all of these and analyze why is this happening, there's only one thing that's common among them all, and that is a single mindset. And the mindset is, it's all about me. You know, the mindset is, um, I've got to do for me and mine alone, because that's going to create businesses that don't give a damn what they hurt in the environment or who they harm in order to make a buck. You know, that's all of the crises we're facing now are the end point of selfishness. This is what selfish looks like. It looks like, you know, systems crumbling all around us. So what we have to do, uh, the, the, the most simple way of explaining what we need to do and the answer to your question is develop a larger definition of we. And I'll give you an example, and I'm not really talking about, you know, I'm not talking about radical, um, you know, Islam or, you know, um, terrorist activity. I'm talking about most of the world, which is just different from us, and how we bridge those differences, those different views. Let's just take something simple, like Republicans and Democrats right now, who are, (laughs) they have a huge polarity of belief. Right, I can't. I can't think of that as being simple. But I go on, please. <laughs> okay, now here's the problem. Both sides believe that theirs is the only version of reality, and they've come to only see that version of reality. So, what I talk about in the book, and and the bond is is 
an attempt to be a blueprint for a new way forward, too, a new world, a new vision. And I believe there are four things we have to do to bridge the, the, these divides. And the one is we, we have to see a lot more holistically, because we've been taught to see so individualistically that we can only see individual things, and we can only see really our own path now. So we have to learn to take a wider perspective. We have to learn to relate so that we value the relationship over being right or winning. That is a change of perspective that makes use of a very different way of relating. And let me give you an example of how well this can work. Please. Um, Again, people on two sides of the fence in America, abortion, real hot button issue. This happened a few years ago in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Some uh, people got shot. Some employees got shot at Planned Parenthood. So the heads of both sides, pro-life and pro-choice, decided to get together. They really felt they, they have to get together now. It's in crisis. So they started meeting in secret, and they learned to have dialogues together in which they, ha- they set some ground rules. They said, well, let's not try to win or demonize the other. You know, we're not going to assume anybody's right or wrong. Let's just share how we believe what we believe. So they did. They shared very deeply, and they also vowed to listen very deeply and from the heart and to not judge. So they did this after a while. And as they did this, when there were more threats on another Planned Parenthood, it was the pro-life people who tipped off the pro-choice people about this. And they also began to work very creatively. They found ways to work together in interesting, new, and synergistic ways. And then finally, they held a press conference um, a few years later, and the press asked them, okay, so who won the debate? And both sides said, no one did, because having shared so deeply about what we believe, we believe it even more. So the reporter said, oh, right, so it was a failure then. And both sides again said, oh, no. Because now, you see, we go out together, we party together, you know, we watch each other's children, we love each other. And that's the point. When you start sharing so deeply like that, you find the bond, you find that common humanity that bridges belief systems to something bigger and larger. I I totally, I see that, I I get that, Lynn, but it it still leaves us in a competitive world. I mean, I have different views than my neighbor, is a case in point, and we're very good friends. And uh, we we kid one another about our political perspectives. Um, but that wouldn't stop him from coming to my aid or me from going to his aid in any situation of need. Still, when it comes time to go to the polls, we'll cast our votes differently. Um you know, when, when you look at the competition that's in the world, you look at our children and they go, they go into the school system. They're in competition for grades. I have a boy who um, is a, an honor student, and he's applying to different universities right now, and many of them are, are courting him. And what's going to be critical about him getting into a Harvey Mudd stay or um, a Stanford is going to be his competitive role on things like the ACT and the SAT. We'll pick this up when we come back. I, I just, I, I'd like to have you help me understand how we practically e- eliminate that. 
Mm-hmm. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment on A-House Radio. We're talking with Lynn McTaggart about her new book, The Bond. If you're uh, not already in our chat room, be sure you get there. You're going to see a film featuring Lynn and a discussion about her book. Just go to eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. Stay with us during the break. You won't want to miss what's coming up in the next half of the show. We'll be right back after these words from some of our friends. Every day, every moment, we face choices. Yet, how many of those choices are truly our own? Are you ready to step onto the path of discovery? Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestseller, Choices and Illusions. Now revised, updated, and expanded. Eldon combines provocative information, scientific research, and his own life's journey into a powerful message that we have the power to change. All we must do is be willing to choose to take the chance and change. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. InnerTalk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R. T-A-L-K.com, Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Lynn McTaggart about her new book, The Bond. But before we get back to today's show, I'd also like to invite you to join me on Facebook and or follow me on Twitter. And if you like our show, do spread the word. We genuinely appreciate your support. Now back to the show. Before the break, we were discussing the nature of competition and, and how it is that that um, this seems to be so pervasive. So let, let me just kind of transition deeply into that idea, Lynn. Uh, you say in your book that uh, it's not about competition of the species for survival. Rather, in your view, it's one of, and I quote, all living things, including human beings, have been hardwired to seek connection virtually above any other impulse, even at personal cost, and they succeed and prosper only when they see themselves as part of a greater whole. So now, Darwin and all those evolutionary biologists, psychologists, and the like are all wrong. And you say that you have evidence, scientific evidence, that that suggests that. Please share some of that with us. Goodness. Well, I have 50 pages of notes and bibliography <laughs> in tiny mm-hmm. type. But, yes, I mean, the evidence demonstrates that um, human beings and all living things really need connection. I mean, we've all been hardwired for that. With human beings, for instance, we've been hardwired to feel as good about giving as and giving selflessly as eating or having sex. 
you know, we're told by the evolutionary biologists that we were born to be selfish, but that just doesn't pan out um, in any kind of evidence. Um, there was a guy called Samuel Oliner who was 12 years old, a Polish Jew, when the Nazis swooped into his ha- uh, town in the mid-40s during World War II and murdered everyone in the town, including his parents. He managed to get away, and he ran rough through the streets until he got to the house of someone he barely knew. Uh, he knocked on the door. Balwina answered. Um, she'd known his dad when, she, when he was young, and, um, but she barely knew him. Nevertheless, she hugged him to her and brought him in. Now, this was terribly risky behavior because she was Christian, she had two children and a husband, and she was surrounded by informants who had been very happy to tell the Nazis that she was harboring a Jew, which would have sent her to the concentration camps and her entire family. Nevertheless, she hid Samuel for two years. He survived, he became a noted sociologist, and he spent his life's work answering a single question— why on earth had she done this? What would compel anybody to put everything they love at risk for a relative stranger? And as a sociologist, he did studies of people who had done these kind of heroic altruism, um, you know, like the, the firemen running up the Twin Towers, right. and also all sorts of people, as well as studying what in the human experience and in the human makeup makes altruists of people. And what he discovered basically is among anybody who has been brought up with any kind of love, altruism comes naturally. That is part of our hard wiring. Um, And they've shown that in studies where children, babies, before they've been socialized, will automatically go out of their way to give and help strangers. And even chimps do the same. Um, But for those people who have not, if they've grown up in a very dysfunctional family without love, they are more likely to be selfish. Selfishness comes naturally to them. So what they're saying is instead of selfishness being, you know, what we are, the human beings are made of, selfishness is the pathology. Now, the other thing is we've got other scientists showing we even have, we need belonging above all else. Human beings need connection above all else. Um, the kind of individualistic guy that you were talking about, the hero, even poor old Jonathan Livingston Siegel, if he was a human being, he'd be the perfect candidate for a heart attack. Because scientists show that that kind of, you know, fist up against the establishment, I'm all alone and I stand up for my beliefs alone, is a very toxic state to to a human being. Um, We need belonging above all else. Um, okay, now you, you say that in your book, Lynn. But, yes. I mean, in your book, you say uh, all American heroes like Gary Cooper, John Wayne, or Harrison Ford in their lone wolf-type roles are perfect candidates for a heart attack. Yet John Wayne and Gary Cooper both died of cancer. Now, they were playing roles. But if you look at the real heroes, George Washington to George Patton, they didn't die of heart attacks. So well, why is that claim necessary to support the importance of, of, of the bond? Okay, let's look at less of our heroes who may have had other kinds of belonging and weren't necessarily fist up against the establishment um, to any extreme degree. Let's just look at people who are by themselves. I mean, people like Dean Ornish, who are you know experts in heart disease, have looked at um, have looked at. Um, people who die of heart attacks, and they find only half of them have the usual risk factors, you know, like high cholesterol. 
All the rest Now you're looking at the personality types. Well, they die of simple loneliness, lack of connection. There's also a wealth of data showing that connection, even bad relationships, are better than no relationships, and they protect us from stroke, depression, even the common cold. Right. Um, Now, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I totally agree with you with with what you're saying there. But but personality types have been shown to be associated with cancer. We we introvert, for example, of our our emotions. We don't express them. There's a a positive association between that kind of personality, uh, behavior, and cancer. Uh, We extrovert, on the other hand, we're angry, we're hostile, we're aggressive. There is a positive association between that behavior and, and heart disease. But but I don't see necessarily in, in this pattern that the bond has anything to, to... I mean, what you're really looking at is two forms of behavior that them, that in and of themselves are selfish. Okay, let me give you some pretty conclusive evidence about this. Then, please, if you don't believe please. me yet. No, I believe Let's you. Let's look at Japanese... I, I, want, I want you to help me understand. <laughs> okay. Japanese immigrants to America. Japanese people are fascinating because many smoke like chimneys. Nevertheless, heart disease is very low in Japan. That's right. Now, epidemiologists have been fascinated by this. And to look at this, they wanted to see what happens when Japanese people come to the States. And they found that some people get heart disease. Their heart disease rate rises to the same level of ordinary Americans, and some don't. So when they started to break this down further, they found diet made absolutely no difference as to whether or not the Japanese went on to get heart disease. You know, they could have a Big Mac and fries or tofu and sushi. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. What mattered, and the only thing that mattered, was whether or not they clustered together in this close social group that they had in the old country. And when they found that those who did didn't have uh, heart disease no matter what they ate. Those who didn't had heart disease that mirrored that of America's, you know, America's culture. So this really fascinated epidemiologists. They went to Japan to try to find this missing X factor. And the Japanese looked at them and they said, well, it's so obvious. You Americans, you're so lonely. You even walk down the street alone. So what I'm really saying, and, and you can see this in so much evidence, I mean, even evidence of poor Americans, some of the most financially challenged Americans don't suffer from depression, according to one study, as long as they have two things, strong spiritual belief, but more important than a spiritual belief is a strong spiritual community. The whole idea that I'm getting to is community, and community is so protective. It's the best drug we have. It protects you against so many illnesses. It protects you against suicide. Suicides die of what psychologists call excessive individuation. They usually kill themselves because they feel left out, and being left out is the, the one thing we humans can't bear. I remember uh, when Touch for Health uh, first came into the into the consciousness, if you will, some 20-odd years ago. Um, there were a number of studies that were run. There was one run in Utah at Primary Children's Hospital on newborn infants. And the difference between how those infants responded, their growth, these were premature infants, their growth, their, their overall health by just being touched, 
regularly during the day, just their arms being stroked, and as opposed to just remaining in an incubator was amazing. So uh, your point, then, if I, if I understand you correctly, is that competition erodes our ability to enjoy community. Is that right? Competition is destroying our lives, is what I'm saying. Uh, I'm saying that, you know, extreme competition, you know, zero-sum game competition, which means I win at somebody else's expense, I win at you lose, is not effective. It's not a way forward. It's not effective in business. I mean, some of the, the most interesting business studies I've looked at have to do with looking at companies where the whole company works together as a unit, as a team, versus companies where they foster competition in the, in the company. That's the old way of doing things. Like Microsoft, they still create these little clusters of, of employees that are set in competition against other clusters of employees. And they think out of that will grow the best, you know, the model mousetrap. They think you get a better mousetrap by, um, by competing like that. And they find that they're not anywhere near as innovative as other companies where they all cluster together as a group and where that fear mentality is removed and people can work creatively together as a team. So what I'm really arguing is the whole idea of the old, we do best for society by looking out for number one is a is an old model. It's a busted flush. It's the res- and that's why we're, we have the problems we have. I'm saying we need a new model that is much more community-based, that creates a larger definition of, of we, where people are brought together for larger goals. Now, you asked me before the break, how could we possibly, you know, you said, well, I got my neighbor and we vote differently. So how can we come together in any way? To answer your question, let me give you a little story about uh, it's co- it, it was one of the favorite psychological studies of all time called the Robbers Cave Experiment. In this experiment, 22 12-year-old boys were sent to summer camp. They were put in two buses. They were um, asked to create separate identities for themselves. So one called themselves the rat- Rattlers, the other the Eagles. Um, they were put in separate living quarters, they had separate flags, and they were put together in, and finally met each other, the other side, in highly competitive games. Now, engineering all of this from their role as camp counselors were a bunch of psychologists who were in disguise. These were in the days before informed consent. Mm-hmm. So after a while, they didn't have to engineer anything. The boys were really killing each other. They were beating each other up. They were stealing each other's flags. They were invading each other's living quarters. They were just, you know, they were in terrible, terrible cutthroat competition, and they hated each other. So then the counselors engineered a series of crises in the camp um, that could only be sorted out by the collective efforts of all the boys involved. So they stuck an impediment in the water supply. Boys had to work together to get it removed. Put a truck in the ditch. Boys had to work together to get it out. And lo and behold, the boys started eating together where they had refused to before. They started talking to each other. They started befriending each other. And by the end of the camp, they unanimously voted to ride on the same bus together. And one of the leaders spent all of his prize money buying ice creams for the whole lot. It's called a superordinate goal, and what it means is a goal that 
can't be achieved except by the collective efforts of everybody involved. And there's a very good reason it works so well to bring people together, because that's what it does. It really brings people together, even who disagree with everything you stand for. When you work together for a common goal, like building a barn, your brainwaves start operating in sync, according to the evidence. And also, there's some other evidence that shows from Oxford rowers that shows that when a group of people row together, doing something similar, their pain threshold is much higher than when they row alone. So the point is, when you bring people together with a larger goal, it's a way of unifying people. And I believe this is one of the simplest ways of bringing people who have a very different worldviews together. Yeah, now, the Robbers Cave uh, experience was, uh, experiment was all about exploring prejudice. Um, but you're right. Uh, by giving common goals, that prejudice did break down. Let's do some definitional accounting for, for ideas that you have in your book, if you don't mind. You, uh, you say there's no such thing as a thing. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Scientists have been taking apart the universe like a great big vast radio for you know the longest time in order to try to understand it. And physicists in particular like to look for the smallest thing in the universe because they figure that if they can find the smallest thing, then they can define all the big things. And they've been looking and looking, and as we all know, they found the atom, and they congratulated themselves for a while, and then they, had, they found subatomic particles, and then before long they found quarks, and now they've found a whole alphabet soup of particles, you know, from muons to tau neutrinos to even, uh, you know, Higgs bosons and things like that that haven't even been seen yet but have only been surmised. And what they find when they actually look at subatomic particles is just a great big poof of vibratory nothingness because a subatomic particle is just a vibrating packet of energy, trading energy with other subatomic particles. And so what they finally recognize, you know, real frontier science physicists, is that the unit of the universe is not a thing at all but a relationship, a relationship of constantly trading energy. You know, subatomic particles are also shape shifters. They're constantly trading energy back and forth. And it's my belief that that unit, which is a relationship, not a thing, is mimicked throughout nature, that nature has created us as one great big intergalactic superorganism. Okay, and so is that why you believe then that our bodies don't exist independently but get created, if you will, quote, from the outside in? Yeah. Let's look at our suppositions about our bodies. You know, we think that that's probably the ultimate example and demonstration of our thingness, right, that we've got a body unique from all others and that it's created from that little blueprint of DNA and created from inside out, from DNA to our you know, cells, to our tissue, to our organs, and so forth. But the latest science has demonstrated just the reverse, that actually the environmental factors, the air we breathe, the, you know, the water we drink, the food we eat, the friends we have, the sum total of how we live our lives, all of this, affects a little quartet of atoms that sit above every gene and determine whether that gene will be expressed or not. Now, Bruce Lipton's written a lot about this. It's called epigenetics. 
And what it really adds up to is that our genes are a lot like the keys of a piano. They just sit there. And whether or not they're going to be expressed depends on environmental influences. And so what I'm really saying is that we don't get invented from inside out. We get invented from outside in, from environmental factors that affect whether or not our genetic history gets expressed or not. And there's even some interesting new evidence demonstrating something even more remarkable. A study of John Cairns did on bacteria showing that um, when a bacteria that was lactose intolerant, essentially, was placed into a lactose medium, it should have died or stopped reproducing. That's not what happened. One of its genes started feverishly hypermutating, almost like a photocopier out of control, until a gene was produced that could digest lactose, at which point the bacteria snipped out the old one and stuck in the new one. Now, this totally rocked the scientific community, so much so they didn't popularize this study for 10 years, because what it was basically saying is that the environment, you know, doesn't just determine whether genes can get expressed. The environment might even change our genes. So what I'm saying is that we, what we call we, is actually ourselves, is actually a complicated bond between ourselves and the environment. Yeah, now epigenetics, for all intent and purposes, is also linked to behavior, attitude, what we're thinking about. But, you know, Lynn, you've used a lot of science uh, quotations, a, a lot of articles. And, and and I'm going to ask you a personal question now because I think any of us that that work in the area that you are, we challenge paradigms. And the result of that is we sometimes find that our work is criticized. And your work is, you know, not unlike that. You're controversial in many circles. Um, and indeed, uh, I, I'm going to ask you how, how this comment makes you feel. And this is a remark under the title of the non-science of Lynn McTaggart. And I quote, Essentially, both uh, essentially, McTaggart's books are opinions on various studies and articles published over the years that, according to McTaggart, show a connection between the will or intention of the mind and physical reality. With the logical agility of an acrobat, she concludes that through the effects of quantum mechanics, it's possible to influence the world around us using nothing but our intentions. It doesn't help that McTaggart is an investigative journalist instead of perhaps a physicist with no formal training in physics or biology, which are the very subjects she's writing about. Like most other authors in the genre, she blatantly disregards the vast, overwhelming body of evidence that proves that people cannot change the world through our intention alone. So now two questions then. First, how do you respond to this kind of attack on your work, and how does it impact you personally? It doesn't impact me in any way whatsoever. I have a thicker skin. And that was written by somebody who is a uh, unqualified skeptic, um, who is the kind of person that Rupert Sheldrake has written an entire website around called Skeptical Investigations. These kind of people are well-organized attempts at discrediting people like me. They attack um, Wikipedia sites. They do all sorts of things. They, you know, this is their intention is to maintain the status quo in science. The only problem is they're not keeping in touch. And basically what I've seen with 
it with um, comments like that is they're not really talking to cutting-edge physicists. They're talking to the flat-earther physicists who have learned a certain level of physics and haven't found out what's been discovered. They're not talking to Anton Zeilander, who is working at the University of Vienna on incredible cutting-edge uh, edge physics or how put off. Now, what I do with my books, I should make very clear, I'm not a scientist. Every single word of my books is read by scientists, loads of them. I show everybody who's part of any kind of chapter the section on them, the science on them, and I meticulously ask them to check it. I also have scientists read the entire book, scientists and science editors and science copy editors. So by the time I'm done, I'm reasonably confident that the work is correct. So most of the people looking at all of that stuff have far more credentials in science than the person who's just written that attack. It and is a great they book. also the basically book. are saying, for instance, I had one review that said, oh, she doesn't We're know what she's talking time. about. Um, you know, she's written about how quantum effects occur in the macro world. That's not true. Well, tell it to Graham Fleming, who is a <laughs> chemist and biologist working at the right. University of California at Berkeley, who's discovered this. So right. basically with these guys, you know, as, really as, Sheldrake says, <laughs> as Sheldrake says, they have a belief. They don't, they're not really into the science. They're not really interested in the data. Um, but yeah. the book is the bond. It, it is a great read. It is a very challenging read. It challenged me. It, it calls upon each of us to find a new way of, uh, of carrying out uh, how we discharge our daily lives. Lynn, you're a great guest. I appreciate you being with us. And I, uh, we've come to the end of the another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our show. And will join us again next week, same time and same place. And if you have comments on our show, do let us all know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. <laughs>